Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Russia firing rockets again at a steel factory in Mariupol, where officials say civilians are still trapped. Russia's top diplomat takes heat for some recent comments. A purported document from the Supreme Court was leaked on Monday. It is a draft opinion that states there is no constitutional right to abortion services. But is it real? The U.S. Navy is allowing sailors to live off an aircraft carrier after suicides occurred on the ship. The move follows a number of deaths and complaints about conditions aboard the carrier. How do the Russian people view Moscow's invasion of Ukraine? We get some insight from a data research firm. Russian forces are firing rockets at the Azovstal steel plant again. Moscow says it's because Ukrainian soldiers took advantage of the ceasefire there to move into firing positions. Officials say about 200 civilians are still trapped in the factory despite evacuations over the weekend. NTD's Jessica Beatty reports. Russian-backed forces started firing rockets toward the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol again Monday, after several dozen civilians were evacuated from the site. Ukraine's foreign minister warned that evacuations aren't over yet, and they're only for civilians, not Ukrainian soldiers. But everything is very fragile. Things can fall apart at any given moment, so it's better to wait until vacation is over. The Azovstal factory is the last stronghold of Ukrainian forces in Mariupol. Outside the factory, where the fighting is stopped, residents try to figure out what to do next. Many of them, like Tatiana Buslanova, have their houses destroyed or heavily damaged. I've got nowhere to go. I would have left with pleasure. If they provided me with a living place, I will leave today. But like this, where to go? Who waits for us anywhere? Mariupol is important to Russia's push to secure a land corridor to Crimea, which Moscow annexed from Kyiv in 2014. Meanwhile, recent comments by Russia's foreign minister are sparking strong reactions. An Italian news channel asked Sergei Lavrov over the weekend about why Russia says it needs to denazify Ukraine if the country's own president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is Jewish. Lavrov responded, saying Nazi leader Adolf Hitler had Jewish origins. Zelensky said Moscow's forgotten or never learned the lessons of World War II. These words mean that Russia's top diplomat is blaming the Jewish people for Nazi crimes. No words. The highest-ranking Jewish elected official in the U.S., Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, also condemned Lavrov's comments. I have only one word for this. Sickening. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says she hopes Congress will move quickly on a bill for emergency aid in Ukraine. The sooner the better. Last week, President Biden requested $33 billion in emergency aid for Ukraine. Lawmakers from both parties said they wanted to approve it quickly, but party differences could stall it in Congress. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Russia's space agency Roscosmos intends to withdraw from the International Space Station amid Western sanctions. Roscosmos chief Dmitry Rogozin said that the agency doesn't feel obligated to provide an exact date of withdrawal, but he did confirm Roscosmos will warn partners on the space station within the one-year notice period. In March, Rogozin announced that Roscosmos would end cooperation on joint projects like the International Space Station. He cited Western economic sanctions imposed on Russia. 
The ISS was launched in 1998, and NASA currently plans to keep it in operation through 2030. Last year, Russia announced it wants to halt operations on the ISS, citing concerns about the station's aging structure. Around the same time, Moscow claimed it is working on a new space station named the Russian Orbital Space Station, which is set to be operated entirely by Roscosmos. Next, we get some insight into how the Russian people view Moscow's war on Ukraine. Several opinion polls show a majority of Russians support the war, but according to Social Europe, social scientists say these are unreliable because the polling companies are loyal to the Russian state. But there's an analytics firm in Cambridge, Massachusetts with no such loyalty. We hear what they found. Joining us now is Jonathan Tubner, who is the founder and CEO of Filter Labs. Thanks for coming on the show, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Can you tell us more about what your research has uncovered in terms of how the war in Ukraine is actually gaining support now among Russians? Yeah, so what we've seen over the period of time, over the course of the conflict, is that there's been some ebbing and flowing of support for the war, but that it has steadily increased over the period of time. That's not true for all the areas of Russian society. We think that there have been some pockets of dissent that have started to decline. But I think that even though the public polling is not as reliable as we would hope, one would hope it would be, it is not way off base that there has been an increase of support for the war over the period of time. And an iconic radio station, Echo of Moscow, has closed. Do you think that this has any impact on the sentiment of the war among Russians? Absolutely. Uh, Echo of Moscow is a serious outlet. There's something like, I believe, 8% of all Muscovites were listening to Echo of uh, Moscow, and I think 3.4 of all Russians. And those numbers don't sound like a lot, but actually that's a significant portion of the population that's tuning in. And if they're not getting access to independent information, that's, that's just one other place where they can't, you know, hear what another perspective or quite frankly the truth of the matter of what's going on in ukraine from your research how much talk is of the russian draft among russians right now that's that's a good question what we've seen is an ebbing and flowing around that conversation what we've seen is that it's a significant portion of the conversation that is that that was definitely throughout march was uncensored So when people wanted to talk about the war and particularly complain about it, they focused their attention on the draft. So we actually saw a pretty significant uptick through the middle part of March. And that that corresponded when the Russian body bags started to come home. And so that's really what kind of ticked it up was the correspondence of the fear of the draft with the reality of what they were seeing that was very hard to to disguise. In what, that are you, case. what are you seeing in terms of the sentiment among Russians of the casualties in the war on the Russian side? Yeah, so what kind of happened throughout March and as those like just those um, body bags were coming home into families um, all across Russia, that casualties, the concern about that was growing tremendously. And there was a kind of a, there was a significant dis- decrease throughout the the month of March around that. However, as Russia pulled back and as Russia kind of more like 
um, focused also its information and propaganda efforts within the country around that, you've seen the attitudes towards it to, to lighten up a little bit, to start to think, oh, the casualties aren't that bad. And some of that has to do with the changing of the war itself, but also in the way in which the um, Russian state media has been messaging around that pretty aggressively, because that's, that's a real vulnerability for them, and they know that. Jonathan Tubner, founder and CEO of Filter Labs, thank you for sharing your information with us. Thanks for having me on. It's been good, been good to be with you. The closure of all 850 McDonald's restaurants in Russia has cost the fast food chain $127 million in the first quarter of 2022. The fast food company announced the Russia exit cost it $27 million in leases, supplier costs, and employee wages, and another $100 million in unsold inventory. McDonald's also temporarily shuttered its 108 locations in Ukraine for safety reasons. The company is losing roughly $55 million a month to pay staff, landlords, and suppliers. This to keep the infrastructure going for its restaurants in Ukraine and Russia. It is unknown if McDonald's will resume its operations in Russia and Ukraine. The fast food chain said it is committed to paying its employees in both countries. McDonald's has served food in Russia for over 30 years. On the first night of March, two ballet dancers left Russia on a desolate footbridge to Estonia. The pair is among many international dancers who have fled the country following the start of the war in Ukraine. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. Adrian Blake Mitchell and Andrea Lashakova were drawn to St. Petersburg like many ballet dancers, attracted by the history and prominence of ballet in Russia. For me, it was always my dream. Like Since I studied, I studied in Slovakia. Uh, I always was fascinated by Russian language and I always wanted to dance in Russia. Now in the U.S., they are rehearsing for an upcoming performance. Mitchell and Lashakova's dream of performing in one of the dance capitals of the world ended when Russia invaded Ukraine. We woke up one day to find out that there had been an invasion of Ukraine. Um, and because of this, we decided to leave. After a four-hour drive across Russia, Mitchell faced harsh questions from Russian security agents at a Russian-Estonian border crossing. After about 10 minutes of questioning, he was released. He actually, he purposely spoke bad Russian because his Russian is pretty good. Uh, but he was worried, you know, that uh, they will think that he's one of them. Or Mitchell and Lashakova made the immediate decision to leave Russia once the war in Ukraine was launched, as rumors of martial law, financial collapse, and the loss of freedoms loomed. But they were hesitant to speak out until they had left. We're not vocal um, until we left Russia. Yeah. Uh, many people that had been vocal were getting knocks on the door or phone calls or being told by their employers that they couldn't do that. Partners on stage and off, the dancers believe the war has caused a deep fissure in the global ballet world. Mitchell says that dancers still in Russia may oppose the war, but fear the consequences of protesting. They are currently rehearsing at Westside Ballet for an upcoming performance of Russian choreographer Oleg Vinogradov's Barber's Adagia. It's a ballet Mitchell and Lashakova have performed in St. Petersburg, but they fear they may never dance in Russia again. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Next, we hear from the president of a family organization that is working to preserve the traditional family and protect U.S. governance from international influences. The organization had success at the United Nations in blocking efforts to grant a global right to abortion and to redefine the family in international law.
Joining us now is Austin Roos, who is the president of the Center for Family and Human Rights. Thank you for joining us, Austin. Delighted to be with you. Thank you. Can you tell us more about your progress that you've made at the UN? We had a major negotiation over the last week called the Commission on Population and Development. The UN speaks to the world through uh, documents that are then ratified by the General Assembly in the fall. This was a negotiation with 54 member states, and these are always opportunities where um, what I call the sexual left gets very aggressive on their issues. And the good news is that we produced a document this week at the United Nations which, which rejected all of those issues. Uh, sadly, the life and family issues were rejected as well, but so were all of the issues of the sexual left. So we had a good week at the United Nations. So can you explain more about how this would affect American families? Well, I'll tell you. Um, the United Nations, well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you how. Some years ago, the Supreme Court uh, overturned the so-called juvenile death penalty. The, um, uh, in overturning the juvenile death penalty, this, the justices of the Supreme Court cited a UN document, which we'd never agreed to, called the Convention on the Rights of the Child. They also cited uh, a portion of an international treaty that we had agreed to, but we had specifically rejected the portion that they referred to. So these issues boil up through the courts. There are cities across the United States, for instance, that have, quote-unquote, ratified the Convention on the, on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. So whether people know it or not, UN documents right now are affecting the way that we live our lives around the country. Let's shift gears here and talk about Disney. What is your reaction to Disney being opposed to Florida banning types of sexual instruction to third graders and then yeah. punishing Disney by taking away this special district? You know, uh, I live in Northern Virginia, and we've been fighting these issues at the local school board level now for many years. Um, my wife uh, and her friends uh, went to the biweekly school board meeting here in Fairfax County every two weeks for more than a year to speak against the, uh, the transgender policy that was being imposed upon the students of, uh, of, of uh, Fairfax County, Virginia. So we, we have been terribly excited about how aggressive uh, the governor of uh, Florida has been. Not at all surprised at the pushback from the people at Disney, because Disney, like most corporations, had been taken over by the sexual left. If you follow the work of the Human Rights Campaign, which is the anti-Christian group here in Washington that pushes the LGBT agenda, you'll see that they have been putting pressure on corporations very seriously now for many, many years. So the left took over corporations quite a long time. So Disney's reaction was not at all surprising. Disappointing? Not surprising. Now, in relation to this, Reuters Ipsos poll says a bipartisan majority of Americans actually oppose laws that go after companies for their political viewpoints. What do you make of this? Well, I would also point out that polls in Florida show that a majority of Floridians uh, support the actions of, of Governor DeSantis. I suspect that the country is divided on this particular question, uh, but I don't think that the, the, the country is divided on the question of whether children should be sexualized. Uh, I think that most people understand that these issues should not be presented to children as young as six and seven years old. Like, And I'll use the example of Fairfax County again. I mean, they were presenting very explicit, even dangerous things to the youngest children, and they still are. So I think that most Americans support um, the blockage of this kind of sexualized material for children. And even if they say that the government shouldn't beat up on corporations for it, I certainly think that, that government should. I think it's a proper role of government to protect children. Austin Roos, president of the Center for Family and Human Rights, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. 
NTD reached out to Disney for comment, but did not hear back by airtime. Pro-life activists and supporters of abortion are gathered at the U.S. Supreme Court. This after a purported leak shows a majority of justices are set to overturn Roe v. Wade. NTD's Melina Wisecup is in Washington. So we're here on the ground in D.C., right in front of the Supreme Court. Protests have gathered here since last night, last evening. We saw some protesters gathered right outside here. After that, uh, a potential ruling, that document from Politico leaked out. Now, here what we're seeing on the ground right now, most of the pro-life activists, they were on this side over here on the left of me. Most of them have kind of thinned out for now. We spoke to that group, and they said that they had their speeches this morning. They arrived at about 9 a.m., and now they're kind of thinning out. They may come back later that pro-life group, but it's unclear right now. Now, we did talk to some people on the other side, and right now, by the way, they also uh, divided the two groups to prevent fighting. Police put some barricades out here to kind of prevent them from getting too heated out here, because we know this is a very monumental decision. But um, so across the way over there are the pro-abortion groups. We spoke to some of them. Apparently, they're having a couple of more groups that are going to be showing up later tonight around 5 p.m., so we can't expect to see more pro-choice activists here protesting. Now, right beside me, this group is quite interesting. This is something you don't see every day. So it's a group of progressives that are uh, joining with con a conser the conservative values of uh, pro-life. So mainly these progressives are, uh, they're for the pro-life movement because they believe equal rights for all. Now, one of the reasons why they're here is because they're trying to promote justice for the five. Now, that's a slogan that we've heard thrown around recently, but what it really means is the five uh, children who were who were allegedly uh, unlawfully killed after birth. Um, the city has says they're investigating it, but we talked to this uh, progressive pro-life group, and they say that they, they're unclear whether or not it's actually being investigated, so this is something they're really pushing for here. So that's something you don't see every day, a group of progressives joining with conservative values to push for pro-life. Now, it's, uh, this, this type of leaked document is something we haven't seen much of or we haven't seen actually at all in history, so it's unclear how it will sway the justices' ruling or if it will sway them at all. This is something we did kind of expect because we know that the, the court right now is conservative-leaning, so it's likely uh, it was likely from the beginning when they took up this case that they would rule conservatively and overturn Roe versus Wade, but this new document really just lights a fire under pro-life and pro-choice activists to really come out here and get their values heard. A purported leaked document on abortion law from the U.S. Supreme Court has stirred up lawmakers and citizens. The alleged draft opinion says the court is moving to overturn Roe v. Wade. And today's Jeremy Sandberg explains. Crowds both in support of and against abortion rights appeared outside the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. on Monday night. This after-media group, Politico, published a document said to have been leaked to them from an anonymous source. This document is an initial draft majority opinion allegedly written by Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito in February, which suggests the Supreme Court will vote to overturn a landmark court decision that legalized abortion nationwide. NTD is unable to independently verify the authenticity of the document or that the leak is genuine. In 1973, the Supreme Court decided in the legal case of Roe v. Wade that the right to personal privacy under the U.S. Constitution protects a woman's ability to have an abortion. It set the precedent to take regulation of abortion away from individual states and legalized it across the U.S. This was maintained in the 1992 case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which ruled laws prohibiting abortion rights imposed an undue burden on abortion access. 
If the leaked document is real, it would be an unprecedented disclosure of a draft Supreme Court opinion and a major breach of protocol and trust within the court known for its cordial fellowship. The purported draft opinion is on the case of Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, a pending challenge to a Mississippi abortion law. Mississippi's Gestational Age Act only allows abortions for medical emergencies or severe fetal abnormality after 15 weeks gestation. Citing the case of Roe v. Wade, lower courts held the state statute was unconstitutional. Mississippi asked the justices to overturn the Roe and Casey rulings. The leaked draft opinion says the Roe v. Wade decision was wrongly decided because the U.S. Constitution makes no specific mention of abortion rights and would allow individual states to more heavily regulate or outright ban the procedure. According to a person familiar with the court's proceedings, uh, this appears to have the support of five of the six Republican-appointed justices on the Supreme Court. The ruling only becomes final when published in court. Some commentators and analysts think the document may have been leaked by a liberal law clerk to influence the outcome of the case by putting pressure on justices to change their mind, or to get Congress to pass a national right to abortion law. Many Republicans have decried the leak, saying it's outrageous, dangerous, and an effort to inject politics into the court. Some Democrats have been trying to pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which would legalize abortion up to the point of birth nationwide, and are calling for the end of the filibuster in the Senate to pass the law. The Supreme Court and the White House have declined to comment. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The Supreme Court ruled Monday on a dispute between Boston and a Christian group that wanted to fly its flag in front of City Hall. NTD's Iris Tao spoke with the group's leader. In a unanimous decision, the Supreme Court ruled Monday that the city of Boston violated the First Amendment when it refused to fly a Christian flag outside City Hall. Yeah, we weren't surprised by the decision, but a little bit surprised by the 9-0 decision. Boston has allowed dozens of private groups to raise their banners on a public flagpole. But when Hal Shirtleff's group applied in 2017 to fly a flag symbolizing Christianity, the city said no. He said, "We uh, please consider other secular flags. He just can't fly the Christian flag. And when I saw that, that sentence, I said, we have a case here that we should win. The city told him that the separation of church and state wouldn't allow the flag to fly. But the high court said Monday that argument doesn't fly. In his opinion, Justice Breyer wrote that Boston's flag-raising program does not express government speech. The government thus cannot discriminate based on religious viewpoint, which Breyer noted is exactly what Boston did in this case. Shirtleff, meanwhile, believes the city misunderstood the First Amendment, as many others have. In fact, I'm, I'm hearing some outrageous things like uh, high school principals, elementary school principals are telling children they can't bring candy canes because it's, it's shaped like a J and it has a Christian uh, it has a Christian allegory behind it. And it's totally ludicrous. And a lot of people just buy into it because they just don't know the Constitution and the First Amendment. Shirtleff's organization works to teach individuals about the Constitution, but he said this case, which they fought for years, did something bigger. We taught the whole country uh, due to this case, and uh, so people will have to look at that First Amendment and say, no, it doesn't mean you can't say God bless you in a public building. The Monday decision also favored the position taken by the Biden administration, which sided with camp constitution and argued that a flag raising program is a public forum, just like an open mic night. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. The U.S. Navy is going to allow sailors to live off ship after a number of deaths occurred on the USS George Washington aircraft carrier. Those include three suicides in the month of April alone. Sailors have also complained about the conditions on the ship. 
about 2,700 crew already sleep off ship and about 420 live aboard. Now about 260 sailors are eligible to opt out of living aboard and 50 beds a week off ship are going to open up going forward. That's according to what a Naval Air Force Atlantic official told ABC News. Lieutenant Commander Rob Myers confirmed the move with the Hill. He said that some sailors are going to shift to accommodations similar to those of a barracks on Monday. And he said that process will continue for all who want to move. Myers said the commanding officer of USS George Washington has taken steps to provide an opportunity to every sailor who is currently living on the ship to elect to move to off-ship accommodations at a local installation. Military.com first reported on the move. That's after the aircraft carrier's commanding officer made the announcement on Thursday. The relocation plan comes in the wake of seven confirmed sailor deaths from the carrier in the last year. Myers said in a statement, The circumstances surrounding these incidents vary, and it is premature to make assumptions as some incidents remain under investigation. The Navy also confirmed three suicides of sailors between November 2019 and October 2020. An investigation has been ordered looking into the deaths and aims to learn more about the climate command and culture issues on the ship. The Navy's top enlisted official visited the carrier on April 22nd. He is Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, Russell Smith. He raised issues about the habitability of the ship and said when it comes to habitability aboard, he wasn't, quote, going to have an answer that's going to make you real happy. Smith said sometimes hot water was turned off and food services were reduced. That's because of a refueling and overhaul process the ship had been undergoing since 2017. Georgia election officials issued subpoenas last week. They're trying to obtain the identities of individuals who may have engaged in ballot trafficking during the 2020 elections. Recipients of the subpoenas are members with the election watchdog organization True the Vote and the group's founder. Ballot trafficking is an act of a third party called a mule collecting an unlimited number of absentee ballots from voters and depositing them in ballot drop boxes for money. True the Vote says they have evidence that shows over 200 mules collected thousands of absentee ballots from voters and made over 5,000 stops at drop boxes in the Atlanta area in late 2020. Tennessee Governor Bill Lee has paused all death row executions for the rest of this year. He plans to review the state's lethal drug testing procedures. Entity's Arlene Richards reports. Death row inmates scheduled for execution have a constitutional right to a quick and painless death. Monday, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee officially paused executions until the end of this year. The state had five scheduled. He said there was an oversight in the preparations for the lethal injection of a recent death row inmate. Tennessee protocols require that lethal injection drugs go through a sterile procedure to eliminate endotoxins that may cause negative consequences. The governor is ordering a third-party review of the drug testing procedure after the Department of Corrections didn't check for these toxins. Public defender Kelly Henry explains what it means if endotoxins are present. So endotoxins are, as the word suggests, toxic. And when you introduce that toxic bacteria into the sterile preparation, you increase the risk that that sterile preparation is going to have negative consequences for the person to whom it's injected. In July 2018, drug companies stopped providing a drug called bentobarbital for executions. So the Tennessee Department of Corrections changed to a three-drug protocol. Inmates claim the procedure causes cruel and unusual punishment. Henry witnessed an execution with the new protocol. She says upon injection of the first drug, the inmate will have a drowning feeling. 
and that the second drug causes a feeling of being buried alive. And then finally, he will feel as if a searing, burning fire is being injected into his veins as potassium chloride travels from the IV site to the heart, finally causing death. Governor Lee said in a statement, the death penalty is an extremely serious matter, and I expect the Tennessee Department of Correction to leave no question that procedures are correctly followed. NTD reached out to the Department of Corrections, but they declined to comment. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Amazon employees at a New York City warehouse voted Monday against unionizing. That's a win for Amazon, which fought against unionizing efforts. NTD's Arian Pastar has more from New York. Last month, Amazon employees in Staten Island formed Amazon's very first labor union in the U.S. This week, the second union could have formed, but most employees voted against it in a 60-40 outcome. Progressive caucus members such as Bernie Sanders and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez rallied with Amazon's labor union in Staten Island ahead of the vote. Nevertheless, no victory for the union. The union's leader says New York City is one of the most expensive places to live in the U.S. and the cost of living is only going up with inflation. He wants a wage increase from $18 an hour to $30 an hour. Also, more breaks and benefits. You can't raise wages arbitrarily in the way that they're demanding and not have a consequence someplace else. Wayne Weingarten is a senior fellow with the Pacific Research Institute. He says union efforts, such as wage increases, can make it less profitable for businesses to operate, which might end up hurting the locations where unions were formed. If you look at car manufacturers, right, when a lot of the new plants came in, especially foreign manufacturers who wanted to, to build in the U.S., they didn't go to Detroit, which had you know, it, it had a really strong kind of presence in terms of manufacturing, had the expertise, but the unionization made it too difficult to actually build profitably. When the nation's first Amazon union formed a month ago, Amazon objected the result, saying Amazon's labor union intimidated employees, making them vote in favor of the union. In a statement to NTD, the union's lawyer denies that and claims the opposite saying Amazon is the only party with the capacity to intimidate potential voters. Amazon can and has threatened voters with loss of employment, lower wages and generally worse working conditions if they vote for the union. The union now has one week to file an objection to the result, similar to how Amazon objected the vote last month. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. Coming up, Hispanics in Arizona are rethinking their support of the Democratic Party they say that rising inflation is really hurting them and that it's tempting them to rethink their politics. A California farmer has double the worries. He fears bird flu could wipe out his flock of 25,000 chickens while inflation takes a huge bite out of his profits. Find out more right here on NTD News. Hispanic voters in Arizona typically support Democrats, but soaring inflation is causing many of them to consider voting for Republicans. Ricardo Aguirre, who runs a taco truck business in Phoenix, Arizona, says contending with the soaring cost of ingredients like tomatoes, meat, and lime is getting too much to bear, and he plans to take out his frustrations at the ballot box. Six dollars for this, before you could get it for two ninety-nine, double in price. 
with inflation hitting a 40-year high. Aguirre, who usually votes for the Democratic Party, said this time's a different story. Believe me, if the Rep Republican Party has something better to offer us, you know, I will vote, you know, Republican. And he's not alone. Among Hispanic voters, inflation is now the top worry, according to an Axios Ipsos poll released in March. And a Quinnipiac University poll published in April found that just 26% of Hispanic voters approved of President Joe Biden's job performance, the lowest mark of any demographic. That could spell trouble for Democrats. Even a small loss of support among Hispanics, a key component of the Democratic coalition of voters that brought Biden to power, could mean the loss of the House and possibly the Senate for Democrats in November's elections. And a further sign of what pollsters say is a long-term erosion of support for Democrats among Latinos. Phoenix-based voter Jose Mendez has supported Democrats every year since 1988. But now that Mendez is bargain hunting amid rising prices, he's debating the need for change. It's on my mind, you know, to change if it's necessary to do it so we can have a better life. The way they're managing right now the economy is not 100 percent in my side. So I'm willing to change if it's needed. Most economists say inflation is caused by a number of factors, largely beyond Biden's control, including global supply chain blockages and the soaring price for oil. Still, Arizona Democrats, like U.S. Senator Mark Kelly, who is facing a tough re-election, has urged Biden to take more steps to lower gas prices. Republicans see Arizona, which is 32 percent Latino, as a top pickup opportunity in their bid to regain control of the Senate. Fourth-generation egg farmer Frank Hilliker fears bird flu may wipe out his entire flock of nearly 25,000 chickens. However, it's inflation that really keeps him up at night. Bird flu and inflation have Frank Hilliker worried about the future of his farm. The fourth-generation egg farmer says an outbreak of the deadly bird flu virus at his lakeside California farm could wipe out his entire flock of nearly 25,000 chickens. If I get the bird flu, it has an 80 to 90 percent mortality rate. So pretty much if we were to get it, we would have to depopulate all the birds. In the worst outbreak since 2015, bird flu has wiped out more than 19 million egg-laying chickens on commercial U.S. farms this year, eliminating about 6 percent of the country's flock, according to Reuters' calculations of federal and state government data. And yet, Hilliker says the threat of bird flu is not his chief worry. Inflation is. Bird flu and the health of the birds don't keep me up at night because I know we do a good job. And if the bird flu happens, there's really not much you can do. It is what it is. You just got to accept it and move on. But what keeps me up at night is the inflation. All my costs, all my raising costs. At Hilliker's ranch, the cost of everything is up, way up. My feed is up over 100%. So I'm paying over double for what I was paying for a couple of years ago. Fuel's up 40%. Packaging is up, depending on the packaging, 25%. Labor, 10 to 15%. Those soaring costs have in turn hiked up the price of eggs. At the store on his farm, Hilliker says customers buy eggs at full retail price, but at grocery stores, consumers are being more cautious. Egg consumption has slowed down. Some of our biggest stores that would take two, three pallets of eggs a week, 
you figure there's 900 dozen on a pallet, or down to like just taking one pallet a week because they've gotten so hot. So far, production hasn't slowed on the farm, with his chickens laying an average of 20,000 eggs per day. Assuming the birds stay healthy, it will be the farm's humans who will feel the heat, as Hilliker says that cutting back on labor will be his first move in fighting rising costs. Just ahead, an international rights group shares stories of victims who lived through China's controversial one-child policy. Its consequences still linger to this day. Stay tuned to find out more. Let's turn now to Beijing's controversial one-child policy. We'll hear from Reggie Littlejohn, president of Women's Whites Without Frontiers. She sheds lights on the stories of those who've lived through the policy firsthand. And just a warning, some viewers may find the following disturbing. 400 million baby boys and girls. That's more than the entire U.S. population. But these babies never saw the light of day. They were aborted under the Chinese Communist regime's one-child policy. Some killed right after birth. The policy was introduced in 1980 and was active for decades after. This was in the mid-90s that um, the one-child policy was not voluntary, which is what the propaganda department was putting out, but was actually very brutally and coercively enforced. Reggie Littlejohn is the founder and president of an international coalition called Women's Rights Without Frontiers. The organization strives to expose and oppose forced abortion, gendercide, and sexual slavery in China. Reggie Littlejohn is an attorney. After graduating from Yale, she began representing refugees who were seeking asylum in the U.S. She says one case really stood out to her. One of them was forcibly sterilized, uh, so meaning that she was picked up and dragged out of her home, screaming and crying, held onto uh, a, a bed, and... For, and sterilized without anesthesia. So she just, she said that this was unbelievably painful, like somebody holding a, you know, a fire hose inside of her. The woman ended up with permanent migraines, back pain, and abdominal pain, conditions she'll endure for the rest of her life. She's one of countless women that suffered the same fate. Through her YouTube channel, Little John describes another case she witnessed. One case that I'll never forget is of a young woman who was seven months pregnant without a birth permit, so that would be an illegal pregnancy, who was walking down the street and she was grabbed by family planning cadres, dragged off the street, strapped down to a table, forced to abort the baby that she very desperately wanted. And after the tragic procedure was over, one of the medical personnel came to her with the body of her aborted baby and said, you need to pay for this so that we can dispose of the body. And she said she didn't have any money, so they just laid that body right next to her in the bed. And I've got a photograph of her looking down and just grieving the loss of this seven-month-old baby that was forcibly aborted. China has put limits on family size since the Chinese Communist Party took the power in 1949, long before the one-child policy took effect. And even though the controversial policy ended in 2016, the consequences are still felt today. For one, it's led to major imbalance in the population. 
China has a far greater number of males than females. That problem is rooted in another issue, gender side. That's when families prefer baby boys over baby girls, largely because sons will take on the responsibility of caring for their parents later in life, while daughters will instead marry and join other families. The one-child policy compounded that situation, especially in rural areas. There, some families will abort baby girls multiple times in some cases until they get a boy. But Women's Rights Without Frontiers is working to fight that with a project called the Save a Girl campaign. It's already saved over 100 baby girls in China. Little John shared a story about how her team managed to save two twin daughters. She explains that the pregnant mother avoided getting an ultrasound until she was very far along because she knew her mother-in-law would force her to abort the baby if it was a girl. When she finally did get the ultrasound, she found out she was carrying not one, but two baby girls. Fortunately, uh, one of our field workers found out about her, came to her door, said, um, congratulations on your twin daughters. Girls are as good as boys, and we will give you two monthly stipends for a year to empower you to keep your daughters. So with that encouragement and with the, um, the money, this $50 a month, she was able to go back to her husband and her mother-in-law and say, look, I can't abort, I can't abandon these baby girls. They're lucky girls. Look, they're already bringing money into the family. And the girls were born, and now, of course, everybody's in love with them. The twins are among the lucky few. While it's difficult to get firm data on the subject, academics say there are now between 30 to 60 million missing girls in China, all of them either aborted or killed right after birth. But the gender imbalance has triggered another severe problem, human trafficking. So there are about 30 to 40 million men without wives and this is the engine that is driving human trafficking and sexual slavery throughout China and by and also from the surrounding countries. And it's impossible to get a number for that because all of this is done with the greatest secrecy. Part of the issue is the way the legal system is set up. Under Chinese law, buying a trafficked woman will land you in jail for a maximum of three years. Buying a panda, on the other hand, leads to a far steeper sentence. 10 years behind bars. A related case sparked outrage on Chinese social media earlier this year, when a mother of eight was found chained to a wall. Video surfaced of the woman locked in a shabby shed in a village in northwestern China, where she had been held for decades. She's suspected to be an example of bride trafficking, another result of the one-child policy. The chained woman's case caught huge attention in China and abroad. But even the strong wave of public opinion couldn't change her fate. Shortly after she was transferred to a local mental hospital, her whereabouts became a mystery to the public. But it's not just the unborn and young facing the after-effects of the one-child policy. And we're also saving abandoned widows that I call um, sort of the, uns the unsung or secret victims of the one-child policy. And people don't think about how the one-child policy is affecting widows, but Traditionally, they were supported by a, a large family, and they don't have a family to support them. So they are very, um, they are impoverished, they are abandoned, and a lot of them are committing suicide. While the consequences of the one-child policy continue to take their toll, reports say one player actually benefited, the Chinese regime. According to a BBC News report, as of October 2015, the communist regime had collected over $300 billion in extra child fines. 
The penalties made up some of the punishments inflicted on parents who had more than one child. But despite the policy's continued impacts, there is hope. Little John says the Women's Rights Without Frontiers Coalition is making a major impact. We're the only organization in the world that actually has boots on the ground inside of China that is actively helping save baby girls from sex of abortion, abandonment, and even just grinding poverty, uh, which is endemic in the Chinese countryside, especially given um, the coronavirus lockdowns. And those efforts aren't slowing down. Coming up, a veterinary hospital in Doha, Qatar, welcomes over 150 falcons a day and offers the best medical treatment for the prized birds. And a Greyhound Park track in Iowa is closing for good. By the end of the year, there will only be two of the dog racing tracks left in the country. We'll have more for you right here on NTD News in just a After the end of this 2022 season in May, the Iowa Greyhound Park track in Dubuque, Iowa will close for good. By the end of the year, there will only be two of the dog racing tracks left in the country. Vera Rasnick is a trainer at Iowa Greyhound Park. She's voicing her disappointment for the closure of the park and for the decline of Greyhound dog racing. We'll be retired, you know, with just so few tracks left. And, you know, for that, to me, it's very sad, you know, especially in this area, this Dubuque area. Um, you know, I've gotten to really love it here. And with it being seasonal, for me, it's very sad to see the city lose the revenue that is from here. Increased concerns about how the dogs are treated has nearly ended the sport. For some animal welfare groups, the industry's collapse is due to mistreatment of the dogs. Industry supporters note there now is a huge demand to adopt retired racers and deny that the problems are widespread. They also contend that some don't understand the love greyhounds have for running. I've been part of all the good and I just, you know, it's very, uh, I think that when they hear those things and they think there's bad, I think greyhound racing has got a bad rap because of that. It's been a long slide for greyhound racing which reached its peak in the 1980s, when there were more than 50 tracks scattered across 19 states. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A veterinary hospital in Doha specializes in treating falcons. The birds of prey are a popular pet in Qatar, and owners want to get the very best medical care for their prized creatures. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. This falcon is being treated at a specialist hospital in central Doha. Qatar's capital city. The Souk Waqif Falcon Hospital welcomes over 150 birds a day. The hospital was opened in 2008. It is a hospital that diagnoses and treats diseases that falcons suffer by providing advanced medical and laboratory equipment through which it can work. And though the medical staff with extensive experience in diagnosing these diseases accurately and efficiently treating them, in the reception room, different falconers wait to admit their pets for checkups. Many sit around petting their birds, holding up water bottles, and spraying their beaks to keep them hydrated. 
Of course, the establishment of the hospital was to support the hobby and heritage of raising falcons. This hobby is well known among Arabs, from parents and grandparents, so we note that often you find that the grandfather goes out with the grandson to land, knows the principles, how to train birds, how to use the bird for hunting, and how to care for the birds. So it is a pastime that stretches through multiple generations. The hospital receives more than 30,000 birds annually. Some visit for routine screenings. These can be performed for buying and selling purposes, especially since the hospital is located in the center of the falcon market. Hamad al-Mashadi is a regular visitor. We came to the hospital today for a regular checkup. We check the bird and perform regular examinations, but this examination is a thorough one where they give them injections to keep diseases away Exilepsy or other sorts of diseases. A falconer should take care of their bird. A person neglecting their bird is a huge problem. Behind the exam doors, the hospital has different medical departments. There's a main clinic, surgical rooms, and radiography. There's also a service to replace damaged feathers. While the birds may be treated using modern veterinary techniques, falconry is a tradition that runs deep in traditional Qatari culture. Andrew Thomas. NTD News. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email on screen. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.